Here at Doxedo Bloom, we're excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope you enjoy today's message. So, good morning, Doxedo Central. To a very special Sunday, the first Sunday that we have two morning services. How exciting is that? You're a part of history. How cool is that, guys? Great. So my name is Lorraine, and it's a real pleasure to have you here with us this morning. If it's your first time here with us, I'd love to welcome you from my side. And our prayer is that you would meet Jesus this morning. That's the prayer. That's what we trust in God for. Not just have a religious experience, but have an encounter with a living person. Now, we're in a series called Disciple Shift. It's something, this series, we do it every single year, and it's a series in which we together as a church, we're trusting God to move the way we think and we do and we live as disciples of Jesus and bring a shift in the way we do this. And this year's title, the thing that we're trusting God for is the devotion to the way. What it would mean as disciples of Jesus to be devoted. So just to get everybody awake, quickly say, I I am devoted to the way. Great. So I'm happy. Thank you, guys. You're with me. I really enjoy this. Now, what does devotion mean? I've been saying this quite a few times, but devotion can be explained like two sides of the same coin. The first side of the coin of devotion talks about the application side of devotion. When you see people devoted, they apply their lives. They focus their lives. They dedicate, willingly sacrifice with this pure passion towards this object or this thing that they devote themselves to. They put an hours. And out of these pure, dedicated, passionate perseverance to the point that it shows the other side of the coin, which is the inspiration side, the thing that draws out such dedication from the human heart, that drives us, that says, I am willing to give my life, pour it out for this. And we've been looking at this verse, these two verses in Acts, chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. And it's kind of like been the summary, because in these two verses, we see the inspiration as well as the application for what the early disciples devoted themselves to. You can quickly read with me. It says, those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Meaning lots of people heard about Jesus. They gave their lives to Jesus. And then after that, it says, they devoted themselves. Everybody say themselves. Not the pastor. Themselves. The pastor didn't devote them. They devoted themselves. After meeting Jesus, after hearing about this man, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, Today, we're going to be looking at that one little word, prayer. What does it mean to devote yourself to prayer? And I'd like to open it up with this statement. Out of all four of the applications, this is the application that has changed my life the most. This one area of devotion has transformed me by far the most. This is the space in intimate moments of prayer where God would come and he would challenge me, he would inspire me, enlighten me, fill my heart with hope, encourage me, and show me that he sees something else in me than what the world would want to expect of me. This is the area that I think, personally, I want to testify about it, has changed me the most. I really hope that it would do the same for you. 
as we're going to go through it and see what it means. Because sadly, the reality is, is this is not the case for most Christians. Most people that praise, and specifically people that say they follow Jesus, find prayer very boring. It's a very boring activity. It's kind of like this religious activity that I do, and it's the place where I go to tell God how bad I was yesterday, last night. Anybody can relate to that one? We start, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I did it, I did it again. And I start explaining how bad I am. And hopefully when I'm sorry enough, he will forgive me. So that's the one side. And the other side we go to, to I think really makes prayer very, very boring, is the I plead and hope and pray that God would give me something. And the more beautiful I'm asking and the better I'm doing with all of my vocab and my convincing, Jesus, I want to convince you that I really, really need this now kind of that's the idea goes that direction it's all about either saying sorry or pleading and hopefully if I plead well enough Jesus will answer shop my boy you're doing good there you go that's kind of the picture and I think for many people prayer becomes this place where it's not just boring but it becomes a time waste why am I praying and I was there I also had that and and probably if you're in this space you're in a place where I was as well. I remember that time very well. Where I could think up any kind of excuse to not pray. I'll read to you a few of my excuses. One of them, I don't have time to pray. I don't know how to pray. I tried before, didn't get what I want, so I don't think my prayer is working. I'm not sure there is a God. What does it help to pray? My mind wanders when I pray. So then I tried a formula that was too contriving. Then I tried freestyling my prayer. Everybody knows the freestyle mode. But that feels too confusing. I fall asleep when I pray. I'm afraid if I pray, God might challenge me to do something that I don't want to do. So I just don't pray. <laughs> that, that's someone that has discovered there's actually some power in prayer. Just by the way. Other people seem to hear God, but I don't hear him. Why should I pray? And then the old, good, famous one. The one that says, if God already knows everything, why should I even bother asking him for anything? He already knows what's going to be happening. Or, I did something bad last night, and now I'm in spiritual timeout, so I really can't speak to God. Anybody knows that one? Well, there's quite a few. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm too cynical. I'm too tired. I'm too extroverted. I'm too introverted. My dog ate the homework, and therefore I couldn't pray. You guys know the list goes on and on. And it's really interesting to see, and it's amazing to see how we can rationalize prayerlessness as followers of Jesus. It's kind of like just it never fits. There's just never space. I can never devote myself to prayer. I believe it's because most of us have not yet discovered that prayer is not a rhyme that we get to repeat, but it's a person that we meet. Say it again. Prayer is not a rhyme that we repeat, guys. It's a person that we meet. So I want to dive into this picture because the reality is when you see prayer as a rhyme, you're still seeing religion. 
You're not seeing the picture that Jesus portrays when it comes to prayer. And for most of us, it's just a religious duty. It's not yet a relational opportunity. We only see duty in this moment. So I can maybe mention this. In my own life, if there is one thing that has wasted my time, drained every single ounce of hope out of my little baby heart, it is this thing called religion. Religion is all about ladders. It's all about climbing ladders, okay? And it's climbing ladders to get to God. So if you obey God, you climb up the ladder and you get closer to God. But if you don't obey him, you climb down the ladder and God rejects you. That's the picture of religion. That is how religion works. I'll quickly show you. Islam. Five pillars of Islam. I obey, say my prayers, I fast, I do the pilgrimage, and then I'm accepted. Do you see the ladder? Climate. Buddhism, the noble eightfold ways of Buddha started. It's hard work, relinquishing your earthly desires, endless rituals, spinning the prayer wheel, all to find the wonderful space of nirvana, climbing my ladder. Hinduism, even though there are so many variants of Hinduism, it's all about this one big promise, the driving force behind it, the law of karma, constantly rewarding good deeds and repaying bad deeds. So I need to go to the temples and praise the gods. That all works well. Judaism, they have the Torah. If you want to know about people knowing how to climb ladders, these guys are experts at it. They've actually named the ladders. In the Torah, which is the book of the law, I mean, all about climbing ladders. And uh, mind you, the Ten Commandments is in the middle there, and the Jews has made an art of playing and putting this into the space of climbing ladders, becoming religious experts. And it's all about the more I obey these, the closer I get to God, and the more I reject or don't do it, God rejects me and I climb down. And I don't know about you, maybe you grew up like I grew up, but I grew up in a very religious environment. I, I actually got exposed to a religious version of Christianity. It goes like this. Obey God, come to church, read your Bible, pray, and just make sure that you're not a bad person. Everybody knows that one. Then God will accept you. And that's the ladder we climb every single day. We go up the ladder. That's religion. Now, I'm not saying to obey God, go to church, read your Bible and pray, and don't do bad stuff. It's not good things. It's really good things. It's really not bad. If you do these things, it would be great. But the thing is, religion tells us you need to climb them to get to God. This is how you get to him. And the problem with climbing ladders is that it does two things to us. The first one is it puffs us up or it breaks us down. There are some people in society and in our world that's really good at obeying rules. They're like experts at it. That's like their thing. They make it happen. And they climb these ladders. And what I've seen with them, and I've seen it in myself, it's because of my great successes in my ladder climbing, I get this boldness, this confidence that I'm a good man, I'm a good person. But for some other reason, these people, they look down on other people. They think they are better than the rest of us. And they lack humility. It's like confidence is so big because I'm just winning the ladder game. I'm up there. But yet I lack a deep sense of humility. Humility. 
Then on the other side, if you're not that good, and we all have our moments where we have a misstep on the ladder, some more than most, you know, and you end up downstairs, you don't make it happen. And the reality is, it breaks you, fills you with shame, feels like you're unworthy, you can't make it happen. That's the problem with ladders. So what's happening with these guys? They become almost, I want to say, maniacs. They're like, oh, I'm so bad. I'm a bad person. I can't do anything right. Then they would start like punishing themselves and so on and so forth, which is crazy to see. I sometimes think these people's minds have kind of left them because they feel so bad about who they are and they need to punish themselves. You see, you see some form of humility but zero levels of confidence. And that's the thing with religion. It cannot give you true humility, confidence, and boldness with a humble posture before God. Here's the thing. Religion gives us either arrogant know-it-alls or miserable maniacs. That's what it gives us. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the picture. If you're going to play the game of climbing ladders, that's going to be your story. That was my story until I met Jesus, until I found out that there is someone who did climb the ladder, broke it in two, made it a cross, and at the center of Christianity is not a ladder, but there is a cross. And that cross means that it's no longer, prayer is no longer a religious duty, but it becomes a relational opportunity. That's the picture. That is what prayer is all about. So what does it mean when I'm saying relational prayer? What does this opportunity for a relational engagement with Jesus mean? So I'm going to be reading in Hebrews 4, because I think Hebrews 4 verses 14 to 15 quite sums up pretty well what prayer is actually doing. What is happening when I'm praying? What is this all about? So you can read with me. It's on the screen as well. It says the following. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high, high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Do you see how he writes? The Hebrew writer points to Jesus, saying there is someone that's standing and there is someone that's made a way that you and I can have a relationship, an opportunity to speak to God. Someone has climbed the ladder. Someone has finished the game. And we start where he finished. That's what's happening here. And he says, because of this reality, I want you to read this. He says, let us then, us meaning us, those who have given their lives and acknowledged that Jesus is the only way. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. I'm only going to read to you there. In those six words, approach God's throne of grace with confidence, I think lies a very good picture of what prayer is all about. The first part of the text says we need to approach God's throne. Now, quickly, who's sitting on God's throne? Anybody? This is not a rhetorical question. We are in a church, guys. 
Who is sitting on God's throne? God. God is sitting on his throne. Do you know what that means? Just quickly want to give you a picture. Do you know what that means? It means that when we come to God, we don't think about our problems first. We think about his power first. We come to a God who is sitting on a throne, one with great authority. That's the first part of being coming in prayer. When you pray, you can boldly approach a God that is powerful, that's almighty, a God who is able. And if you were wondering how able he is, let me quickly share with you. God was able to deliver David from Goliath, to deliver Daniel from the lion's den, to give a child to a 90-year-old Sarah, to calm the storm, part the seas, walk the water, judge the nations in righteousness, harden the heart of Pharaoh, soften the heart of Saul. There is nothing that our God is not able to do. That is what happens when you pray. You approach a God who is able to do even the unthinkable. In your life. When you pray, that's your reality. Praying is not positive thinking or wishing something nice up into the air. No. Prayer is approaching the throne. And there's somebody on that throne. And that somebody is able. And if there were ever a moment for you to say amen, it is now. <laughs> if you were wondering, this is the space. Our God is able, guys, and he's able to do things in your life. That's the reality. So the first part of prayer is that we get to approach a throne, and it's a great image of power and sovereignty, but the text doesn't just leave us there. It takes us one step further. It says, this throne has a name. The throne of God has a name. Can you imagine that? God decides to give his throne, his place of authority, his seat of power, gives it a name. It's not performance. <laughs> throne's name is not the throne of performance. It's not the throne of giftedness. It's not the throne around which beautiful people of wealth and importance do all of their meetings and work. It's not even the throne of the spiritual giants. No. It's the throne of grace. That's the name of God's throne. It's a throne for misfits, mess-ups, needy, desperate, unclean, sinful losers like me who failed. And who would like to be a ruler that gather people around his throne? People like this. Let me tell you, our God, he has opened up a throne. That's the name. I want to share with you a story. When I, the one morning, actually had the privilege of experiencing this part of his throne, experiencing God's grace. Many times it has happened before, but this was quite a significant one for me. It was the morning that I went to go and chat to God. It's right after I gave over children's ministry to Ellery, just gave over leadership and environment. And you guys, some of you have heard part of this story. And um, suddenly all the significance were like just flattened out of my way. I didn't feel like I had anything to contribute. Because you see, what has happened all the way in my leadership journey, even in God's church, I have been using my position to climb a ladder. I've been trying to say, if I can have success 
in my leadership, then God will really accept me and love me. That's where I was. I was filled with pride. And God revealed it to me that morning in the car in a way that I could have never dreamed or imagined it would happen. I was reading my Bible, and God took me to the place of Haman. It's in the book of Esther. And Haman is probably the guy that's the extremest form of a character in terms of filled with pride. I mean, this guy is second in charge of the Persian Empire. That's basically where he's seated. What does he do? He goes around. And he wants everybody to bow down before him just to make him feel more better about himself because he's just been promoted. What happens? Mordecai the Jew, a man with identity who knows who is his God, stands. I'm not going to bow. That one man that did not bow did something in Haman. Just by the way, pride makes you like an animal because look at this. One Jew doesn't bow. Haman wants to kill the whole Jewish nation. I mean, it's not even reasonable. That's what pride does to you. It just doesn't make you think rationally. You totally lose it. It devours you. It takes you over. So what happens in the story of Haman is really interesting because it's the greatest plot twist ever that you'll probably get in the Bible except for the cross because Haman goes to the king the one morning and the king stops him and asks him, Haman, what should the king do to the man in whom the king delights? Haman, obviously, filled full of himself, sitting there thinking, well, obviously it's me. <laughs> so let me tell you what you should do. You should give him the king's robe. Do you know what that means? It means that if the king would give someone his robe, he says, I see you as good enough to be me. I give you my identity. You can wear it. You are worthy to be me. If someone would see you in the king's robe, it meant that the king approved of you as being good enough, actually good enough to be him. The second thing that he asked for is, I want to ride on the king's horse. The king's horse, place of victory. You come back from a victorious battle, and the king sees you as his victory. And that's what Haman was longing for. And then he said, lastly, I want the most trusted advisor to drive and walk in front of me and say, this is the man in whom the king delights. And then the great plot twist happens. The king looks at him and he says, go and do it to Mordecai, <laughs> the Jew. Can you imagine the disappointment there? But guys, you know, that morning as I was sitting there, God showed me a picture of myself because I was so entitled, so full of myself and dealing with this little sense of loss that I've experienced, which in any ways was grace from God. And he showed me, he said, Lorraine, you are the one that feel you need to sit on the horse. You are the one that feels you're entitled to. And in that moment, growing up as a Christian and knowing about Jesus, I realized this is not on. Who's the man in whom God truly delights? Who is it? Name is Jesus. And I wanted to take his space. And the moment I saw it, 
That was just the start of what God wanted to do with me that morning. I like backpedal there like crazy. I was just like, no ways, God. This is not possible. I cannot, I cannot even allow this. I'm so sorry. I cannot believe I thought I would even take that space, that place. And I wanted Jesus to walk in front of me and tell the people, this is who the man, the king, the lights. And the moment, as far as I'm busy just backpedaling, the next moment, the Holy Spirit stops me and he tells me, the ring, but I've already done it. I've already taken your place. And there's nothing you can do about it. And I've given you mine. And now my son walks in front and he says, because you are saved, this is the man in whom the king delights. That's God's grace. That's the thing that changes us around. That's what happens when you pray. You do not just stand before a God who's able but you stand before his throne of grace. And you're reminded that you only matter because of what he has done. That's the picture of prayer. The last part that I quickly want to point out is that the text tells us we need to approach his, this place with confidence. This place of prayer, we need to approach it with confidence. I don't know about you, especially after I told you my story. Probably your story is way, way bigger, and you're thinking, oh, Lorraine, whatever. You don't know my story. Let me tell you, God will speak to you no matter what your story is. I mean, he spoke to me as a leader, abusing the gifts that he's given me to use it for selfish gain. But still, he spoke to me, and he turned me upside down. If you ever think God will not speak to you, can I quickly read you a few names? Just quickly want to mention this. So God spoke to Cain. He killed his brother. God spoke to him right after he killed his brother. God spoke to Moses. He was a murderer and a fugitive. God spoke to Abraham. He was a liar. God spoke to David. He was an adulterer. God spoke to Solomon. He was a polygamist. God spoke to Jonah. He was a runaway. God spoke to Thomas. He was a doubter. God spoke to Peter. He was a denier. God spoke to Lazarus. He was dead. God even spoke to a donkey who doesn't have a name. We don't even know who it is. Why on earth do you think God would not speak to you when you pray? Why don't you expect his voice to come and shake you up, build you up, change you? You know, when God speaks, he created the worlds. When he speaks, he's going to create new things in your heart. He's going to change your world, change your view. Prayer, guys, is powerful. If prayer ever is boring, you do not know who you're engaging with. <laughs> you do not understand where you are standing when you're praying. You have no clue of the privilege that you have. I want to end off with Matthew. Matthew is one of these guys, one of the disciples of Jesus. That was like one of the guys that would say, God would never speak to me. I mean, Matthew grew up in the Jewish nation, probably one of the most religious nations ever. Matthew climbed the ladder. Didn't make it. It broke him to the point where he would become a tax collector a traitor of his very own nation. And then the Son of God approached him. And he experienced God's grace. And he met the man that would break the ladder and turn it in, into a cross and hang for him on that ladder. 
it shifted and changed that man upside down. He was one of the disciples, and I found it really interesting that all of the disciples, they could have asked anything from Jesus. They could have said, Jesus, teach us, teach us, teach us. I want to do miracles. I want to walk on water. I want to make bread. I mean, like, they could have asked for anything. <laughs> what do they ask? They say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. That's where they end. Teach us how to pray. Matthew pens this down. Matthew 6, verses 5. It says, Jesus busy teaching. The first part, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have already received their reward in full. In this whole piece of scripture, and I'm going to go through it systematically quickly, God is speaking about the reward of prayer. That's where Jesus starts off. And the hypocrite's reward for prayer? People's recognition. That's what they want. Even if it's right here at church, or maybe it's for yourself. When you get rewarded or recognized, you feel so spiritual about yourself. It's kind of like the thing. So when I pray, I feel good about myself. I'm praying for people. I'm even praying for myself that it feels like because I pray now, I feel good. No matter whether people saw me, I saw me. Do you get the picture of what I'm saying here? So the religious guys are praying for recognition and they're praying for people. Verse 7, I'm going to skip verse 6 because Jesus gives us the diamond in verse seven, uh, verses 6. Verse 7 and 8, the naked, next reward. He says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the pagan's reward. I call it the pagan's reward. So the hypocrite's reward is recognition. The pagan's reward is a response. That's all we're looking for, an answer. God, just give me an answer. How many of you guys, how many times have I spoken to that are just looking for a, an answer in prayer. When you make the reward of prayer the answer, you're missing the point. That's not what Jesus gives us. It's not that you get an answer, that you've received the reward of prayer. No. In fact, sometimes people will even say, I prayed, I didn't get an answer, my prayer didn't work. Or maybe I did pray, I didn't get my prayer worked. Can I just quickly make a statement? Your prayer never works. Only Jesus works. That's the one that's working. <laughs> you get the picture? It's not your prayer that's going to make things work. It's only the king that makes things work. That's not the reward of prayer. And it doesn't matter how hard you try to get an answer out of God, if you think that's your reward, the answer, you're missing the reward. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 6. He unpacks it so beautifully. He says, but when you pray, go into your room. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, just quickly want to mention this. Someone is your father, then you are his child. Who sees in secret what is done in secret, he will reward you. What is the reward for a child? The child's reward when it comes to prayer. It's relationship. That's the reward of prayer. It's an intimate 
relationship with full access to the Father. I've used this example so many times, but it still stuns me. The person that will have unlimited access to the President of the United States of America, the most protected person on the planet probably, will be his three-year-old little daughter that will even stand up at two o'clock at night, like ours did last night, and said, Mommy, I need you. Daddy, I need you. And the moment that happens, you wake up and you're available. There isn't a relationship in which you have more access than a father-child relationship. And I want to tell you this morning that your creator wants to connect with you. That is the good news of prayer. That's the reward. The one that created you is the one that wants to connect with you. That's his heart. That's what Jesus is saying. God repositions you and me to connect with our creator. Wow. Think about it. Just for a moment, think about the implications. You getting access to the most mighty throne, the most forgiving throne, and you can do it with confidence. You do not need to hide away. You do not need to prove yourself. You can just walk in. Why? Because Jesus broke the ladder and he opened up a way let's pray I want to give an opportunity this morning I don't know if you know this Jesus maybe you have been climbing the ladder Maybe you've been broken by that same ladder. But if this morning you want to embrace the cross for the very first time, I want to ask you to put up your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I just want to ask you to put up your hand and say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to embrace the opportunity that he has for me. Is there anyone like that this morning? Do not let this moment wait. If that is what God is doing, if you need to hear and experience His grace for the very first time, and He's speaking to you, I want you to put up your hand right now. Do not wait. Amen. 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 Anyone else? Wonderful. I see you. I see what you've done. This is so, 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 so amazing. <laughs> I want you to pray with me for a moment, but afterwards I want to invite you to come to the front. I want to meet you right here. I'm going to ask Bertus if he's possible to join me as well, because I want to pray with you personally as well. But if you put your hand up now, I want you to pray after me just as a moment to invite Jesus into your life. You can speak to God now. So let's pray. Father, I want to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life. I acknowledge that He is your Son. I believe it with all of my heart. 
And in Jesus' name I pray this thing. And we all say, Amen. Amen. If you've just done that. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.